1: Thanks for joining me for another installment of new books in military history. With me today is Ben Shepard. He's a reader at Glasgow Caledonian University uh, in the UK. And we're here today to talk about his recent book, Terror in the Balkans, German Armies and Partisan Warfare, which was published this year by Harvard University Press. Thanks for joining
0: me, Ben. Thanks. Thanks, Jay.
1: Um, I like to start the interviews by allowing the authors to kind of introduce themselves, give us a little bit of a Mm -hmm. a sense of how you came to the project.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, Well, I've been interested in World War II from the age of five, which was some cause for concern for my parents when I was that age. But in terms of the... um, the development of the ideas which have led to this book, I suppose the genesis of them lies in my uh, undergraduate final year project which I did on the German officer corps in the Second World War. I was particularly interested not not so much in their military performance as in questions like their relationship with the Nazi regime, their role in occupation policy. Uh, whether it was to do with their role in the treatment of prisoners of war, ordinary civilians, partisans, stroke guerrillas, uh, minority groups such as uh, Roma and Sinti, communists and, of course, Jews. Obviously, these issues are much more vital uh, and still much more emotive when it comes to Eastern Europe uh, than it does to Western Europe and so therefore the PhD research which was a direct development from my undergraduate project dealt with German army anti-partisan units behind the lines in the Soviet Union and with the current book I've sought to investigate German army anti- anti-partisan units in occupied Yugoslavia during World War Two. so it's all about investigating the role of the German army at the level of not the top generals and not the ordinary soldiers either, but the units in the middle, um, divisions, regiments and so on, and how they were conducting themselves uh, towards partisans, Jews, communists, um, civilians generally, how things like Nazi ideology and the conditions which they faced on the ground shaped their behaviour towards these groups, whether in a brutal direction or in a, a more moderating direction in some cases.
1: Right. Well, that, the the first book made quite a splash, and in, in part because the the area is so uh, understudied in in many ways. Certainly, in English, there's yeah. there's not very much written about anti partisan warfare, and yet it was a huge part of the the German war effort, and, and a um, and obviously a huge part of the the atrocities that the that the mm-hmm. German army committed. Yeah. Um, so you, you began to investigate Yugoslavia. One of, the, one of the strengths of the book, I think, is your ability to kind of clarify the, the ethnic tangle and the kind of political uh, ethnic situation that the Germans find when they invade the country in 1941. Mm-hmm. So maybe it might help our listeners to understand a little bit about who some of the, the cast of characters are that you're uh, studying.
0: Certainly. Um, the Germans hadn't expected to have to invade or occupy Yugoslavia in the first place. Uh, they invaded the country in April 1941, but that was under very unexpected circumstances. To cut a very long story short, they invaded Yugoslavia because Yugoslavia was supposed to be joining uh, the uh, the tripartite pact with Germany and Italy and at the last minute there was a coup in Yugoslavia and whilst the new Yugoslav government pledged to continue to pledge support for the tripartite pact Hitler didn't trust them anymore and so he invaded Yugoslavia with the aid of the Italians as a means of securing the Balkan flank in the run-up to the invasion of the Soviet Union which took place two months later. So the Germans and their Axis allies, um, the Italians, the Bulgarians and so on, found themselves in a situation where they were occupying a country which they hadn't expected to occupy and Hitler in particular wanted to occupy the country on a shoestring. So the various parts of Yugoslavia were carved up. Some went to Some were occupied directly by Germany. Some went to Germany's Axis satellites and to Italy. Um, Others still were placed under puppet governments, particularly the um, independent state of Croatia, uh, which fell under the charge of the uh, fascist Ostarsha movement. And because the Germans didn't want to... Commit a great deal in the way of resources to occupying Yugoslavia. It was much harder for them to keep a lid on the ethnic tensions which already existed and which the act of occupation exacerbated. And the three main groupings, or the three main, should we say, ethnically based groupings in uh, occupied Yugoslavia, were the Austarsha. Um, in the independent state of Croatia. Then you had the Chetnik movement, uh, which was based not just in Serbia but also in the Serb populated regions elsewhere in Yugoslavia uh, including those in the independent state of Croatia and then also within the independent state of Croatia particularly in Bosnia you had the Bosnian Muslims and they're less pivotally important to the story that I'm telling than were the Chetniks or the Ustasha. Uh, but they certainly figure and that's not to mention uh, of course the partisan movement which was um, a, a, a multi-ethnic movement within Yugoslavia so four players four major players there um, all of whom had their causes of grievance with one another, uh, whether uh, these grievances were um, to do with long-standing ethnic rivalries, whether they were to do with uh, political and econ- or whether they were a result rather of political and economic problems that had beset Yugoslavia during the interwar years. There, there was a whole um, hotbed of tensions between these different groups and the fact that the Germans weren't occupying Yugoslavia with anything like the amount of troops on the ground that they would have needed to really keep a lid on those tensions and the fact that their Axis allies such as the Italians weren't in a position to effectively keep a lid on those tensions either meant that those tensions were going to increasingly boil over and cause increasing chaos and difficulty not just for the smooth running of the Axis occupation but also in much more deadly ways for the Yugoslav population on the ground caught up in the middle of these violent conflicts.
1: Well, you you raise a whole host of issues there, and one uh, that I think is important to emphasize, and I think especially for uh, American audiences who maybe have different impressions of the Wehrmacht, is the, mm-hmm. the, the that as you emphasize the kind of improvised and shoestring nature of of huge sections of the German war effort, not just mm-hmm. occupation, but you know you could you could kind of go on and on mm. how how under resourced the Germans were really in in all kinds of important areas, and yeah. and that they carry on and uh, with these kind of projects anyway is. Uh, is a sign of their uh, well. I don't know. I guess I don't know what it's a sign of, but it uh, makes makes their defeat seem uh, hardly surprising in some ways.
0: Mm, yeah, I think in a nutshell, you could argue that whilst the German army, for taking the German army specifically as, as opposed to the, the navy and the air force, uh, was extremely proficient in many ways. In other ways, it wasn't, and its overall strategy was. Too ambitious, far too ambitious, and it wasn't matched by the resources that it had at its disposal. Mm-hmm.
1: And you mentioned one of, the, one of the early factors that you uh, mentioned as contributing to the violence in Yugoslavia is mm. this German, the the German army's penchant uh, or desire for its perfect order. And this is an mm. issue that other scholars, Isabel Hall and so forth, have have shown us in other contexts. But how yeah. that that sort of poisoned. Uh, poisoned the, the, the well for the Germans as they went in expecting mm. it to be, to be able to control it so tightly
0: yes yeah well I think what you had there was a desire for perfect order but not backed up with the resources in order to ensure it right
1: and that, that contributes then to the, the, the desperation of the troops that we find on the ground
0: Yes. Uh, I mean, one one has to differentiate between, you're talking about ordinary troops, you're talking about their commanders, certainly uh, ordinary troops on the ground uh, in many parts of Yugoslavia at many times during the war felt a great deal of desperation, a great deal of mortal fear.
1: Well, one of the things I like about the book is you know, the, the clear exposition of some of the, the background of the German army, sort of the development of that strategic doctrine, and then mm-hmm. at the personal level, the experience of, of some of these commanders that you study in the First World War, their Austrian background. Um, tell us a little bit about how that shapes their, their behavior
0: well i think it 's important to stress that the book is talking about a relatively small number of generals, so the findings uh, which it produces, I would argue are interesting um, um, cause for further consideration, certainly cause for further research. The patterns which seem to emerge among or the pattern which seems to emerge among the officers uh, in this study uh, is that the origin uh, of those officers who came from Austria as opposed to those officers who came from Germany did play a significant part in hardening their attitude towards the conduct of anti-partisan warfare Um, I would say that that relationship becomes it, it's, it's seen clearly uh, at the highest command level when you look at generals like Franz Burma who in 1941, autumn 1941 was the plenipotentiary commanding general in Serbia and you also see it uh, among some divisional and regimental commanders um, those commanders who were of Austrian origin, not in every case but in quite a number of cases uh, do appear to have behaved more harshly and that can be put down to a number of possible factors, and I stress possible factors because it's rarely, if ever, the case that one of these generals would have left us with letters or diaries or memoirs uh, saying words to the effect of, you know, these Serbs or these Southern Slavs can't be trusted, Um, let's give them hell, etc. But certainly if one thinks about the relationship between Austria and particularly Serbia um, before and during the First World War, uh, it becomes apparent just why officers who didn't necessarily serve in serbia during the first world war but were certainly aware of uh, just how bad the blood was between austria and serbia during the first world war could well have been affected by that knowledge by that group mentality um in a way that would have gone on to affect how they behaved towards um any kind of unrest in occupied Yugoslavia in World War II. You can take the fact that it was a Serb who assassinated Archduke Franz Ferdinand which led to the outbreak of the war in the first place. Uh, The fact that Austrian armies were humiliated serially in the field by the Serbian army in the first few months of World War I and the only way they were able to take Serbia over in 1915 was with German help. Uh, The fact that the Austrian troops going into Serbia particularly in 1914 came up not just uh, against regular soldiers but also against um, <coughs> against uh, guerrilla um, bands who uh, inflicted heavy casualties upon them uh, but in ways which conventional armies have uh, always traditionally seen as furtive um, and devious and underhand um, and then moving somewhat further on into the war, even after the central powers, Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Bulgaria, had overrun Serbia. Um, when the Serb army retreated to the coast, it took large numbers of Austrian prisoners with it on what, for many, became a death march. And it's also worth remembering that it was the, Serb, the exiled Serb army which then returned from exile in autumn 1918 and spearheaded the Allied offensive in the, the southern Balkans, which led to the collapse of Austria-Hungary's Balkan Front, and then directly after that to uh, Austria-Hungary's surrender at the beginning of November 1918. So lots of historical reasons, going back to the First World War, why there was a great deal of bad blood uh, between Austrians and Serbs. And one can go further back than that also, um, Considering the longer history of Austrian counterinsurgency Austro-Hungarian counterinsurgency in the Balkans, so not just in Serbia but also in Bosnia, actually from the late 1870s onward, uh, and that's really just um, a selection, if you like, of the historical reasons why Austrian uh, Wehrmacht offers Austrian army. I just ought to get the terminology clear here. When one is talking about the Wehrmacht, um, one is usually talking about the German armed forces uh, collectively—the Luftwaffe, uh, the air force. uh, Sorry, the Luftwaffe, the the navy, and the army. Um, And it's probably helpful for the purpose of this interview to talk about the Wehrmacht um, uh, as equating with the German army because it it probably makes things a little easier for uh, for listeners to understand. So, uh, talking about Austrian Wehrmacht officers fighting in Yugoslavia in World War II influenced for a whole host of historical reasons in a hardening direction uh, particularly towards the Serbs.
1: Well, so I mean, you've you've made perfectly clear why that that distinction is important to make in the Serbian case between yeah. officers with an Aust- Austrian background and and those with a German background. And of course, yeah. they, they were separate armies uh, prior to nineteen eighty. Well, prior to nineteen thirty seven, right? Um, yeah. Well, March the March thirty eight you had
0: the union between Germany and Austria. Correct. Right.
1: The. Um, uh, you know, separate separate institutions, not just separate national histories, but se- separate mm. institutional histories that that go back, and that might mm. be something um, that's that's worth exploring in other contexts. Is that mm. that d- difference between the Austrian component of the of the unified Wehrmacht mm. and, the, and the the German one? So the and then the other factor relating to World War One is the the service on the Eastern Front versus service on the West. You found yeah. again, however, however tentatively you want to make the conclusions, you found some, mm. some patterns there as well.
0: Yeah, I, I think this is, again, another respect in which uh, the book uh, doesn't necessarily draw decisive conclusions, but certainly I think raises interesting questions uh, for future studies. And I, I'm not the first person to raise these questions, but I've applied them to this context. And um, it's obviously important to remember that every battlefront in the First World War was bound to have a hardening, indeed often brutalising effect on the officers and men who fought there, whether you're talking about the Western Front, uh, the Italian Front, uh, the Balkan Front or the Eastern Front. Um, I think the interesting thing about the Eastern Front in World War I, though, is the diverse ways in which um, officers and men could be affected in a hardening way, whether it was because of the nature of the fighting there, or because of the fact that in the East you had ethnic groupings, whether Slavs, uh, Eastern Jews, or what have you, uh, which for a number of reasons um, were associated by either German soldiers or or by German-speaking Austrian soldiers with negative backward images of the East. Um, However unjustifiable Uh, just that that may seem to our eyes now that is how they saw it at the time Uh, and I'd argue that that combination of brutal fighting conditions um, the ethnic composition of the regions over which the Eastern Front was fought uh, but also the extremely harsh environmental conditions uh, bearing in mind the depth of uh, the Russian winter for example um, made for a brutalizing combination, not necessarily the most brutalizing combination um, experienced by uh, officers and men in World War I, but certainly a brutalizing co- combination. Mm.
1: Yeah, you, you cite Beas uh, Levitas' Warland on the Eastern Front, which I think mm-hmm. is an important book that kind of pointed us in that direction several years ago with the disclaimer yeah. that, that, he, that he's a friend of mine from grad school. So this plug, mm-hmm. you might be a little suspicious of. The no, 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 time. fine. It's a, <laughs> it's a very good book. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I guess, you know, one, one more element that we can emphasize about your book is that it's, it's not simply a matter of the Germans going in with their racial ideology and, and Mm. raping and pillaging that you do, uh, you provide some nuance by, by getting into that level of the command structure and and showing how German policy, you know, changes and one could say evolves, um, over over the period of the of the occupation, even though it's yeah. ultimately unsuccessful, so what do you think? Um, it's not simply a matter of personnel, but what what? How do you how would you trace that evolution of of the German policies?
0: Um, so you're talking about. German policy or German security policy in, Yugos- in occupied Yugoslavia generally, i.e., not not practiced by individual divisions, or, or, or are you asking about individual divisions? Well, I guess
1: I I was saying, I mean, your your book does talk about individual um, as, as commanders and their backgrounds and how mm. that influenced their general approach, but that German German policy changes over over this short time span of this occupation, between yeah. relying on harsher measures or or trying to be mm. a bit more conciliatory and and win harsh and minds and so forth.
0: Um, yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, I mean, if, if, if you're looking for a, a brief overview of that, I think uh, the first, ooh, let's see, uh, first couple of months or so of the occupation um, were really quite lenient in, in, in relative terms. And when we're talking about German occupation of Yugoslavia, um, we are talking about, um, as I said, a, a fairly um, an, uh, non-extensive presence uh, across occupied Yugoslavia library U- U- as a whole in those first few months of the occupation you had one German occupation division in the independent state of Croatia that was the 718th infantry division and then you had another three occupation divisions operating in Serbia. Serbia was um, Well, uh, it was very much um, a a puppet state. Officially, the independent state of Croatia was not a puppet state. It was an Axis satellite, um, which had a a somewhat higher um, level of status. But Serbia um, was, uh, under the Asimovich regime, and and then um, uh, under um, General Nedic, was... um, very much a puppet state, and the German approach to that puppet state because this Serbia really was um, as i said in, in the first in the first uh, i 'd say eight months of the occupation uh, was the um, the um, theatre of operations for the great majority of German troops in occupied Yugoslavia. For the first two or three months of that occupation, the Germans had um, quite a hands-off approach to the majority serb population they did not have a hands-off approach towards uh, the jewish population in serbia right from the start uh, the jewish population was persecuted uh, increasingly murderously so as, to, uh, so as time went on and, and that point needs stressing that um, this leniency towards the majority serb population was always coupled with harshness uh, and eventually genocidal harshness towards the jews but yeah towards the majority serb population relatively lenient a uh, big change came with the um, advent of the German invasion of the Soviet Union because obviously that meant that the um, Yugoslav communist partisans could now um, start to operate against the Germans that isn't to say that they hadn't laid down plans for operating against Germans already, they had, but what this meant was that they now had the nod from Moscow uh, to start resisting but um, the main uh, cause of massive, increasingly massive anti-Axis unrest uh, across occupied Yugoslavia in 1941 um, was not uh, as a result of it being fomented by the partisans or indeed any other group Um, it was fomented Uh, largely because of the brutal persecution of Jews, uh, Sinti and Roma, and particularly Serbs, in the independent state of Croatia, which the Ostasa regime there was enacting. Uh, Brutal pogroms, um, which really, for the the, the sheer bestial nature of them, have more in common with, for instance, the Rwandan genocide uh, than with the... Uh, clinical, albeit utterly ruthless, um, German uh, Nazi genocide uh, of the Jews. So this um, explosion of ethnic mayhem in the independent state of Croatia uh, led to... Um, a great many ordinary Serbs, realizing that their um, their national survival, their ethnic survival, depended on them resisting somehow, and the communist partisans, uh, but also the Serb Chetniks, who were right wing uh, nationalist and royalist. Um, both sought to, to cut a very long story short, both sought to capitalize, um, to, to, if you like, ride the reins of the popular revolt against Axis rule uh, that was now developing. It should be stressed that the partisans were, were riding this beast more proactively than the Chetniks were. Um, the Czechs were more hesitant because they were terrified, uh, particularly, leader Mihailovic was terrified at the prospect of vicious German reprisals uh, towards any resistance. But um, eventually they had to uh, at least uh, temporarily come in with the partisans to um, somehow ride the reins of the revolt to uh, take some kind of control over it, to give it some kind of direction. And the scale of that revolt and the partisan and Chetnik involvement in it led to a massive escalation of German harshness. Um, reprisal policy was ratcheted up brutally. It even exceeded the guidelines that were issued from unhired. Just give you one example. In September 1941, the German Armed Forces High Command. Um, <laughs> excuse me issued um, a uh, a proclamation uh, stipulating that one hundred hostages should be shot for every German soldier killed by a partisan or by guerrilla, uh, but the Uh, Wehrmacht commander on the spot, General Burma, um, of of Austrian extraction, went a step further. He explicitly targeted these shootings against Jews. So there was that added ideological dimension to the killing. Being brought in there. So, an an extremely vicious reprisal campaign um, enacted by the Germans in uh, the autumn of 1941. And it was the German army at the forefront of this campaign uh, at this stage, not the SS and police. Um, That brutal campaign was only one of the factors which led to the collapse of the revolt, that ultimate. We can talk about the other factors later if you like, but just in terms of that um, uh, that swing from leniency to harshness and back to relative leniency again, um, it, it can't be denied that the brutality of German reprisals was one of the reasons why the uh, Serb national revolt collapsed. Then the action moved, or the the main body of the action moved from Serbia to the independent state of Croatia. Um, the Chetniks um, in Serbia lay dormant for the rest of the war. Uh, the partisans under Tito moved into the independent state of Croatia because of the mountainous regions contained there. And the mountainous terrain in the... Um, I'm sorry, I might have called it the NDH, uh, which was a slip of the tongue. The NDH um, is the um, acronym for the... Um, independent state of Croatia as it is spoken in Serbo-Croat off the top of my head because I'm not a Serbo-Croat speaker. I can't remember what exact words NDH stand for. But anyway, you then had from 1942-43 um, a, a growing partisan movement in the independent state of Croatia, a growing um, Bosnian-Serb-Chetnik movement in the ind- independent state of Croatia, um, utterly antagonistic towards each other. All thoughts of alliance now gone. Uh, the Bosnian-Muslims to an court in the middle but also um, involved in the interethnic violence as well um, atrocities and counter atrocities committed by all three of these groups against one another, although it's fair to say that the partisans learned sooner, a lot sooner than the Ustasha to rein in their brutality as a means of appealing to all ethnic groupings in Yugoslavia, uh, in occupied Yugoslavia, and thereby strengthening uh, their numbers and their support. Um, and over time... Uh, it became increasingly apparent that the partisans were uh, by a considerable weight the most troublesome of these groups towards the occupation. This led to the an influx of ever greater numbers of German troops uh, both Wehrmacht and SS into the independent state of Croatia and um, a growing number of uh, extremely brutal large-scale anti-partisan operations in the independent state of Croatia. What happened was, though, these brutal large-scale anti-partisan operations were often interspersed with attempts at greater leniency. The difficulty was that the overriding dynamic was in a more brutal direction, so attempts at leniency to to co-opt the population, to um, declare amnesties for partisan deserters, um, in some cases to um, arrange prisoner exchanges with the partisans, didn't have the lasting effects that they could have done because the um, brutal nature of the German anti-partisan operations were highly unlikely to win over popular support. Um, I've talked about this at some length, but there's just one more point it's worth making at this at this stage, which is that it's worth asking why German brutality succeeded in Serbia in 41, but not in the independent state of Croatia uh, in 42-43. Um, the reasons for that are complex, but one of the reasons it's fair to say is that by now they were facing increasingly large numbers of Partisans, and the terror tactics which they had employed against the population in Serbia were actually uh, harder to enact in a more systematic way in the independent state of Croatia because of the terrain, because of the fact that large areas were falling fully under partisan control uh, and also because the Germans just didn't have enough troops on the ground in order to back up um, the reprisals that they were carrying out with genuine uh, decisive military blows against the partisans. So it's one thing to try and terrorize the population into submission uh, but when it's increasingly difficult to Uh, combine that terroristic campaign with general military blows against the partisans um, then terror starts to have less of a decisive long-term effect and there are other reasons why um, the, the, that that the brutal German uh, tactics in the independent state of Croatia weren't working, which I won't go into now because I think it would probably take too long to answer. But that's a sketch of some of the reasons anyway.
1: Well, I had several uh, took notes about several issues I wanted to raise, but one mm-hmm. thing that just occurred to me from your final comments is how, and I don't recall from the book, is how important was external support of the of the partisans or the Chetniks um, in, in in enabling them or you know to uh, to defeat the Germans or to. Frustrate the Germans at least?
0: Well, um, the book Terror in the Balkans doesn't cover the entire course of uh, the insurgency stroke counterinsurgency in Yugoslavia. It stops in spring 1943. Uh, now, prior to then, um, it is probably fair to say that external support, i.e. from the British, the Americans, the Soviets, uh didn't have a particularly decisive effect. Things did change in 1943. Uh, the British and Americans transferred such support that they'd been giving to the Chetniks to the partisans when they realized that uh, out of all the groups uh, in, U- in occupied Yugoslavia, only the partisans could be said to be um, actively working against the Axis occupation. The Chetniks were either in a dormant state or in some cases were collaborating with the Axis Mm -hmm. against the partisans. and um, the support which the Allies were, were able to provide, we're, we're talking predominantly about Western Allied support rather than Soviet support, uh, because uh, as the, Allies, the Western Allies encroached upon um, the Mediterranean front of occupied Europe, uh, they were able to provide more practical help to the partisans. Uh, and that help started to manifest itself in other ways as the war in the Mediterranean turned against the axis. Um, so it became increasingly possible for the Allies to support the partisans from the air and from the sea, especially as the Allies advanced up, uh, up the Italian Peninsula from autumn 1943 onward. Um, and developments of the Italian Peninsula had a massive effects also. Uh, Italy's collapse in um, September 1943 uh, led to huge amounts of equipment and arms and indeed some Italian personnel going over to the partisans. They were able to seize uh, huge amounts of equipment and weaponry uh, to their great advantage and they were able to do this more effectively, much more effectively than the Chetniks were. So outside support had an increasingly important effect as time went by, but up until spring 43, the period that my book looks at, uh, it wasn't a major factor.
1: Well that discussion of the the various uh parties involved also reminds me of a point that that you raised earlier about the Germans mm. being um you know entangled in these local disputes and it it does happens else elsewhere other than Yugoslavia too there's a I just read um Holly Case's book on Transylvania right so the mm. the rivalry between the Romanians and the Hungarians that mm. that sort of drags the Germans unwillingly in, in in that case I think um uh into that that political territorial tangle. And uh, it happens in Yugoslavia with much more Mm -hmm. direct, excuse me, military uh, consequences. Uh, That's Mm. an interesting phenomenon about German, German expansion. The other, the other thing that struck me in the book and that I remember encountering in the archive too, is this, this penchant for euphemism, right? Or, or maybe that's not the right, uh, description of it, but you know, you you give us countless examples of the Germans, um, you know, engaged in anti-partisan operations, and they you know kill a hundred partisans and seize three pistols, right? You know, or, yeah. that's that's maybe an exaggeration, but
0: the, no, it's not. Which, <laughs> no, which, in which a lot we, of you know, cases, it's not. Yeah. they call
1: yeah. it you know bandit. You know, we we rounded up two hundred and fifty bandits, including women and children, and confiscated fifteen rifles or something like mm. that. And yeah. and the the reliance on these these terminologies like bandits and partisans when the target are clear, clearly civilians, or in many cases Jews. Uh, if you look mm. at, the, at the Eastern Front, uh, yeah, uh, it's a and and I even remember seeing it on documents that are clearly secret, right? So it's not mm. like this is a, a press release. This is a, this is communication between people who who clearly know what's up, mm. and, but they rely on these euphemisms.
0: Mm. Yes. Well, I don't, know, I don't uh, know what to make of that, but <laughs> it no, occurs. no, no. It's um, I think. If you take the example of bandits, um, it's debatable as to whether they themselves, that is to say that the German commanders actually saw it as a euphemism so much as a an accurate description of the opponent they were facing um it one of the things that's interesting about the use of the word bandit is that Heinrich Himmler in I think May 1942 I could be wrong but I think May 1942 made it compulsory uh terminology to be used in reports on anti-partisan warfare you know they would be referred to as bandits but there are cases which um I refer to in Terror in the Balkans of German army uh, Wehrmacht commanders um, using such terminology earlier than Himmler did uh, Mm. in the first few weeks of the campaign and you could argue that that is a legacy of the German military's long-standing aversion to irregular warfare an aversion which Many historical cases uh, suggest was stronger in uh, the German military than it was in the militaries of other governments. I, I think that is um, a, a quali- it needs to be qualified view because there are cases of German counterinsurgency campaigns prior to World War II, for instance, in the Ukraine in 1918, which weren't all about brutality. They weren't all about terror. Um, they employed leniency to to an extent as well. Um, one doesn't want to get into the. Um, differences in, in the various uh, counterinsurgency campaigns that the German military pursued before uh, World War II, but it is important to recognise that it wasn't all brutal. Certainly what can be claimed, though, is that a lot of it was brutal, and it was that brutal tradition that was invoked, and not these more moderate traditions that were invoked by the commanders on the spot in Yugoslavia, uh, certainly in 1941, and, and to a, a very great extent in 42 and 43 as well. So whether they saw the term bandit as euphemistic or accurate uh, I think is an important point to bear in mind important issue to bear in mind anyway
1: and it, and it, even though the documentary evidence isn't as clear, as you said before, as you might as you might wish for, uh, mm. that kind of the logical step about the kind of historical prejudices and stereotypes mm. that had developed about the Bal- nature of the Balkans and so forth, um, yeah. Yeah. probably plays a role in that.
0: Yeah. Well. Again, though, I think I would stress it that it's important not to get too teleological about this. Um, it, it's important to recognize, I think, for instance, that within the Austrian military, or the Austro-Hungarian military, um prior to 1918, um, there was a tradition of uh, ethnic toleration as well. Um, there were moderating influences at work. It would be wrong. I mean, I, I know you're not, not not doing this, but I think it'd be wrong for anyone reading this book to conclude that you know, in the Balkan context, German equals ba- uh, German equals lenient, um, Austrian equals harsh. Um, it's it's not as simple as that. Many German commanders were uh, were brutal for various reasons and um, there were historical reasons why Austrian commanders had um, a tradition of moderation on which they could draw as well as a tradition of harshness. What I'm saying is that whether it was for reasons as perceived um, necessity from 1941 onward or for reasons to do with the particular commanders um, of Austrian origin who were operating on the spot in Yugoslavia uh, during World War II, harshness was relied upon um, more than moderation and it was harsh traditions, those harsh Historical traditions that were drawn upon, rather than the more moderating ones.
1: And it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think um, the Austrian occupation of Serbia in the First World War was mm. has actually been characterized as relatively lenient in terms of extractions of food and so forth, while Vienna was was really facing hard times. Yeah, and if I recall, there was an official policy not to, uh, to simply plunder Serbia for the benefit of, of Vienna. So there are counterfailing historical precedents as well.
0: Yes, I would say that. I mean, having said that, it depends what you're talking about relative to. The Austrians were not as brutal and exploitative in Serbia in occupied Serbia in World War One as the Bulgarians were. Um, Austria-Hungary and Bulgaria, being allied to Germany um, in World War One, um, the Austro-Hungarians and the Bulgarians carved occupied Serbia up between them. The Bulgarians were a good deal worse, uh, or significantly worse. Um, I, I mean, there are, you know, there, there are conflicts views on this. I, I would say that uh, a really good work on the Austro-Hungarian occupation of Serbia in World War One um, is by um, Jonathan Gumbs uh, which I think came out in 2008 and it's called uh, The Resurrection and Collapse of Empire in Habsburg, Serbia. He certainly argues that um, this was not, that this occupation was not a blueprint for brutal Nazi occupation in World War Two. It needs to be seen more as a 19th Century style of occupation, rather than a blueprint for a, a, a more brutal twentieth-century fascist uh, occupation.
1: Mm. I guess it's the, the the sad truth when we're talking about these kinds of subjects is that we're often t- talking about uh, uh, relative levels of of atrocity and, yeah. and uh, depravity. Yeah. So yes. Uh, yes, on that on that happy note. Yes, well, very happy. Uh, uh, I would. Uh, I think we've I think we've touched on uh, the major issues that your book raises, and I think it does a great job of of, of clarifying, at least as you said, for that for that limited sample and that uh, and even that limited time period in the in the Balkans, sort of uh, some of the factors that shaped uh, German occupation in that area. And I think yeah. I think people will naturally uh, try to extend that research to other areas and 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 test some of these. Um, Hypotheses. Yeah, that'll be. Look forward to that. I hope so. Why don't you you tell me a little bit about uh, what you're working on now? And then, um, as I said, I warned you I'd Mm -hmm. ask you about what you're reading, but maybe, maybe you want to sidestep that question. uh,
0: What new books you read? You read, but Uh, what 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 are well, I actually thought about the new books I've read and I realise I have actually read rather a lot of um, uh, interesting new books in, in the last few months. Um, when I um, um, w- was initially asked by you to um, reflect on the um, new works that I have read, I- I've read fewer new works in the last few months Um than in previous periods, partly because the book I am now working on is going to be uh, a general history of the German army uh, under the Third Reich. Um, particularly during World War Two, And I'm currently working through uh, the standard works, particularly the standard works on the operational performance of the German army in World War II. Uh, previous, uh, my previous research, uh, my previous monographs war in the Wild East and Terror in the Balkans, uh, given that they have re- preoccupied themselves with the role of the army in occupation, um, the role of the army um, in the Nazi state, its relationship with National Socialism, uh, its role in atrocities, in not just party, anti-partisan warfare, but also in other spheres of occupation, um, mean that um, I'm a relative newcomer to um, developing expertise in the operational side of the German army in World War Two. So I'm currently plowing through the standard works on the operational history of the German army. And the book that will result, I'm very much hoping, is going to be, um, I wouldn't say a groundbreaking uh, monumental new work, but what it will be is a new kind of synthesis of... Um, the major research that's been done on the German army, whether in terms of its its combat performance, its role in the occupation, its relationship with the Nazi state, its position and its relationship with German society, what what this book that I'm writing is going to do is going to synthesise, and uh, I very much hope come up with some some fresh new interpretations of the. Massive body of um, of scholarship which has been produced on the topic of the German army under the Third Reich over the last 30 years. Um, the, um, the last um, English language overviews of the German army um, came out really um, in the late 70s, early 80s with works like um, Albert Seaton, um, The German Army, 1933 to 45. Excellent works, but um, published before this um, um, mushrooming of um, of scholarship on the German army, particularly its uh, role in the uh, much darker aspects of World War Two occupation, genocide, and so on. Uh, you've got a massive mushrooming of, of works in this area from uh, the 1980s onward. Um, and then with the opening of former Eastern Bloc archives, you've got a mushrooming of new interest in... Uh, really all aspects of uh, the German army in the Second World War as it related to Eastern Europe, whether that's due with the occupation, with issues of genocide, war crimes, um, or the actual fighting uh, at the front. So uh, a, a huge volume of scholarship that's emerged uh, in the last 30 years for these and other reasons, uh, which I'm looking to synthesize and convey in a scholarly but engaging and accessible way for a general readership the idea is for it to be done is being published with yale uh, and the idea is for it to be published to coincide with the 70th anniversary of the end of world war ii in 2015.
1: Well, good good luck with that. I can. I'm sure you. you I, I suspect you know the work, but we. One of my recent uh, interviews was with David Stahl, uh, yeah, who is uh, published in uh, with Cambridge University Press. This mm-hmm. was in 2009, the Operation yeah. Barbarossa. That's yeah. a, I found that a, a, a very helpful book, and I guess he followed that up. By the time I'd interviewed him, he'd, he was already coming out with a book on on Kiev. So that kind oh, of yeah. operational, um, that kind of mm-hmm. operational history. It's being there's plenty of that
0: to read. <laughs> absolutely i mean i think particularly um, with respect to the eastern front although not exclusively um, the sheer volume of quality scholarship uh, which has been emerging in recent years as exemplified by uh, stale and, and others uh is is prolific so there's... There's a lot, to, a lot to immerse myself in. It's a challenge, but an interesting one.
1: All right. Well, thank you for your time. It was a fascinating interview. I hope, uh, I hope the uh, listeners to new books in military history will take the time to, to explore not only this book, but the one that's forthcoming. I think that would be right up. Uh, maybe we'll, we'll have you back again sometime.
0: That would be great. Thanks. I should look forward to that.
1: Thanks very much. Thanks, Jay. You've been listening to my interview with Ben Shepard, author of Terror in the Balkans German Armies and Partisan Warfare, which appeared with Harvard University Press in 2012. Thanks for listening.